Dear Father, how exciting it is to see and know spiritual truths that you've given us in your word. How exciting this is, Father, and not just because we want to fill our head with knowledge. I hope not, Father. I hope that's not our goal. But it's exciting because, Father, it's transformative. It makes us different. It, it causes us, Father, to think differently. Where, where we might have been disappointed and when we might have had worry or concerns about things of this world, now those things seem to just pass over us like, like water off the back of a duck. We don't have any reason to fi- fixate on these concerns that we used to be so wrapped up in. Because, Father, we've been transformed by the renewing of our mind and the Word of God. What a blessing that is. Father, thank you for the power of your Word to do that in our hearts. But, Father, not all is perfect. We know, and you know. There's days, Father, we still have worries. And there's days, Father, we still obsess about things in this life. And we can't divorce ourselves from those concerns. You haven't asked us to. As your son prayed on our behalf, he, he didn't ask that we be taken out of the world. But he did ask, Father, that we be protected and preserved from the evil one and from his schemes. And, Lord, I thank you that your word gives us the equipping we need so that we can see through those things, those schemes, those lies. And that we can understand ourselves truly and you truly and in that way know to serve you better. We thank you for a little church. Not because it's little, though we do appreciate what that gives us, Father, in terms of community. And not because it's ours or because it's something we built, but because it is you at work. We just thank you, Father, that you've given us a community of, of a type that, that we can enjoy to each other and we can enjoy you. That we can be here for all the right reasons and not be drawn away by the things that the world substitutes for working in spirit and truth. I thank you, Father, for the diligence and the, and the dedication of men and women who've made this their home as a, a church family for so long. And we thank you, Father, for the new people who've come in the last year or two, perhaps, who are, who are bringing new energy, new insight, and new desires here. We thank you, Father, that you keep renewing us this way, both in who we are and what we know. But I also pray, Father, that you would not let us be content to simply have what we have, but that we'd have a desire and an urgency to share it and that it would come out in, in natural ways throughout our week and that this place on a Sunday would, would just be the culmination of a week of ministry in each of our lives. So prepare us for that as well in your word this morning, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin chapter 2, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to remember what the word Christian means. The word was first used to describe anyone who followed Jesus back in Antioch. In the first century, shortly after the martyrdom of Stephen in Jerusalem, the result of that martyrdom was persecution breaking out in the city, and it drove some of the Christians who were living there, particularly some men from Cyprus, out to other places. And some of those men ended up in Antioch. While they were there, they began preaching and sharing what they knew of Jesus with the Greeks that they found in Antioch. And lo and behold, some of those Greeks began to agree with the teaching they were hearing from these men who had come up from Jerusalem, and they began to follow Jesus as well. And it was at that point that these Greek followers of Jesus in the city of Antioch first coined the term Christian to describe themselves. It's a uniquely Greek word. It means a follower of Jesus, literally speaking, but it carries a different sense in the Greek. It carries the sense of an imitator. That is, a follower is one who wants to be like their master or the one they follow. So we might say it a little differently. We might say a Christian is like a little Christ. Of course, we all say we want to be like Christ, and we say that because we know that's Christ's goal for us as well. But we also know there are a lot of days when we are not like Christ at all, and despite trying 
as hard as we might to follow his commandments, we fall short of his perfection. And friends, there are times when we probably aren't even trying. But here's the good news. Even if you're not trying, we are going to become like Christ, ultimately, one way or another. And as you remember at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul was teaching that Christ's future will be our future, not just in the end state, but even in the steps that lead us there. That is to say, Paul taught how Christ died, and then how Christ was raised from the dead, and then Christ was elevated into the Father's presence, and then Christ was seated in a place of honor in the heavenly places, and that he received an inheritance, and that he has authority that he will show when he comes to rule in the kingdom. Those are the steps that the Father purposed in Christ's life as a model for what he will do for us. We will do all the same things in our own way. We too will have to be raised from the dead. We too will share in Christ's inheritance and in his honor. We too will rule with authority in the kingdom under Christ. We have a version of what he has at every step of the path. And why do we expect these things? Why are we sure of these things? Well, simply because we've been made fellow heirs in this new covenant. And because we are fellow heirs in Christ, fellow heirs of the Father, Paul said back in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, that these things were secured for us by the Father's might. The Father's might accomplished these things not only for his son, but he did them also for us. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? Just knowing that your eternal future has been secured for you by God the Father. He's not waiting for you to do something to secure it. Of course, I'm speaking now to those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But if that's who you are, then of course, you don't have to do anything else. That is to say, he has already secured that entire walk I just described all the way to the point of the kingdom. Surely it will come to pass. So now, with that in mind, Paul goes into chapter 2 attempting to clearly illustrate how similar your path is to Christ's path. And he begins by explaining how you've already taken some of the steps of that path by, by the Father's might. You're already well into this plan, even though you haven't seen the end of it yet. That is, as a little Christ, you're going to do the same things Christ did in a spiritual sense. And Paul wants you to understand that path. The explanation of our path goes from verses 1 to verse 7 of chapter 2. And in fact, if you just scan, without trying to read it all in detail, if you just scan, compare the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, and you'll notice a very similar pattern. He'll say almost exactly the same things that he said at the end of 1 about Christ. Now he'll say them about you and I at the beginning of chapter 2. What we'll do today is just the first step of that comparison. So we're going to move diligently, if slowly. Uh, Paul begins the chapter talking about our first common step with Christ and that first common step is death chapter 2 verse 1 he says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience so in chapter 1 Paul said the path that Christ took as our as our trailblazer as the first fruits of the resurrection, as the first fruits of this process, the first step Christ took was that he died a death. Now we all know his death is the death on the cross where he paid for our sins, but Paul says you as a little Christ, as a Christian, will follow Jesus in a similar fashion. Your walk also begins with a death, but here's the difference. In our case, the death he's referring to here existed before we came to know the Lord. Paul says that before we knew Christ, 
We were, notice past tense, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, think back to the day before you became a believer. If you're an adult and you came to faith maybe as an adult, that time of your life is probably pretty sharp in your memory. If you're a younger person, or even as an adult, if you came to faith as a young person, a very young child perhaps, that moment of transition may be a lot harder to remember. But nevertheless, it happened for all of us at, at a point, whether it was when we were young or whether we were old. And when it happened, you can all agree, you were alive before you became a believer. I mean, at least in a sense, right? Your heart was beating. You had a spirit in you of some type. A spirit was in your body. You were alive in that sense. But... In terms of your relationship with God, you were, we were all dead, spiritually speaking. Had we never come to faith in Jesus, then the moment that our heart stopped beating, our eternal future would have been determined at that point. We would have been forever separated from God because of our sin, and we would have had to experience what the Bible calls the second death, an eternity in the lake of fire. So in a way, you could say that the way you existed prior to Christ was like a convict living on death row in a prison. I mean, you're alive, in a sense, but you're only temporarily alive, and you have no hope for a rescue under those circumstances. Another way to say it is, you were as good as dead. That's what Paul means when he says, you were dead. You were in a state that had no hope in this world and none in eternity, and you were just waiting for the clock to tick. But friends, being dead in this sense goes far deeper than just speaking about your future, your eternal future. Being dead also described the state of your spiritual being at that time as you walked the earth. Being dead means you had a spiritual inability to rescue yourself from your predicament. To understand why that's true or what Paul's alluding to here, we need to take a more careful look at Paul's explanation of deadness in the verses I just read, starting in verse 1. He specifically says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And the first insight I'm going to offer you this morning, friends, is those two words are not synonyms. Paul's not just repeating it to make emphasis here. He's speaking about two different things. The Greek word for trespass means literally false steps. We could say going the wrong direction. As in walking somewhere we shouldn't go. Just like when we say we're trespassing on someone else's property. We're walking where we shouldn't walk. So trespasses are offenses against law, against standards for righteousness. So we could say anytime we do something that is different than what God would want us to do under those circumstances, that would be a trespass. You violate the laws of this nation, for example, you're trespassing. When you disobey your parents, or you disobey a teacher, or your boss, you are trespassing. When you break the rules and the norms of society, when you are rude to someone, you are trespassing. Even when you just fail to show common courtesy, when you say something unkind, when you think an unkind thought, from God's point of view, according to His standards for what is good, you have just trespassed. So simply put, when you do the wrong thing in any way and under any circumstances for any reason, that's a trespass. And even one trespass makes us a lawbreaker. Even one. And all lawbreakers must receive the penalty of the law. And scripture says the penalty for trespassing God's law is eternal death. So when Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses, he is saying that though you may have been alive and walking around the earth and feeling pretty good about yourself, in reality you were like the walking dead. Not the TV show, but like the idea of someone who is walking but 
not really alive, and you were due a penalty of death. But then Paul adds, you were also dead in your sins. And here again, you may think that's just a way to say the same thing twice, but it's not. The Greek word for sin means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It's a very interesting idea. Because to miss the mark implies that you're trying. It implies that you were trying to do the right thing, but you still found a way to come up short in the end. I want you to imagine a university student who's trying to pass a very difficult college course. And that student is studying diligently. They're taking the test with with great care. But in the end, despite their best efforts, the student fails the exam, and as a result, they flunk the course. That student was trying to succeed, and yet in the end, they missed the mark. So the result in their case is no better than if they had never tried in the first place. That is exactly the situation of every unbeliever who is dead, in the way Paul intends here, dead in their sins. They may be trying to do the right thing from time to time. Nevertheless, from God's point of view, they always come up short anyway. What they thought to be a good idea turns out to be a mistake anyway. And and speaking as a man, I think this is an idea that every husband understands instinctively. We, we, we know what it's like in our own experience to set out to do the right thing for our wives, but somehow, in the end, we miss the mark anyway. Like the time we, we buy a weed whacker for our wife on Mother's Day. I mean, it, it seemed like such a good idea at the time. Right? She's often complained about the appearance of the yard, and surely a new yard tool is going to give an obvious demonstration of our love and concern for what she cares about. It was only after she started unwrapping it, and we see the expression on her face, that we begin to reconsider our decision on the gift. We had tried to do the right thing, but we missed the mark. This is all theoretical. So, the Lord describes the dilemma of unbelievers and husbands this way in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 he says for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away so the Lord says through Isaiah that the unbeliever is unclean before God I want to bring out the imagery that he's using here before we go back into Ephesians, the Bible uses the imagery of wearing a clean white robe as a picture of being innocent and righteous before God. Think of the whiteness being purity. And the fact that it's on you like a robe, it covers anything that's impure. It makes you appear righteous before God. But for the same reason, conversely, the Bible pictures a sinful person who's under condemnation for their sin as being unclean. Think of it as being dressed in filthy clothing. The opposite picture, right? That's the state, the Bible says, of everyone who has not yet accepted Jesus as Lord. If you want to imagine how God views humanity who does not know Him yet, it's like watching a whole room full of people in filthy clothing. Standing before God, clothed in this dirty clothing, so to speak. And then Isaiah says, and this is the part that's of most importance to us this morning, he says, the good works that are done by unbelievers do not change their standing before God. Unbelievers do good works from time to time, and they may give donations to worthy causes, they may volunteer to build homes for the homeless, they may send greeting cards to soldiers on Christmas, they may volunteer to cut their neighbor's lawn after he's forced to return his weed whacker after Mother's Day. There's lots of ways that unbelievers may step in to do things that they feel are good for the sake of someone else in humanity, right? The Bible says, because they don't know the Lord, their reasons for doing these things 
are not good in the end. Perhaps they think they're buying their way into heaven. Or maybe they just want to absolve their guilty conscience of past mistakes. Or maybe they hope it will make them look good before their friends and family. Or maybe they just like the way it makes them feel when they do something that makes someone else happy. Whatever their good works are, and for whatever reason they do them, the Lord says their works, notice, are like filthy garments. They may have been seeking to be clean before the Lord, but they came out just as dirty as they ever were. Their righteous deeds were worthless in the sight of God. Now isn't that ironic? Because religious-minded people do good works expecting that some God of, of their own imaginations, I guess, is being pleased by all of this good work, and the real God, the only God, is saying from heaven, well, you know what? I find nothing in it of any value. Every time they do something they think is good for God, it's just sin on top of sin. They've literally put another filthy garment on top of their existing filthy garments, and they think they've done something to help themselves. That's a very important insight to the world that thinks that you can please God by your works. Scripture says you cannot. They're just more sin. Because they don't come out of a holy motive, a holy heart. They're not in alignment with God. We were dead then, Paul says back in Ephesians. We were dead before we knew the Lord in two ways. Our trespasses left us in jeopardy of that eternal death. We were like the walking dead. But secondly, any efforts we were making to reverse our situation were fruitless because even our good works missed the mark. That is, they were sin. We were trespassing, and when we tried to do good, we were missing the mark. So nothing good's coming out of either side of the equation. We were dead because we were spiritually incapable of correcting the problem that put us there in the first place. You are in a hole that you created, and so you have to find a way to stop digging. The idea of being dead, uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, the word dead there is necros in Greek. It literally refers to dead bodies. You know, we get necro as the prefix for a lot of words speaking about dead bodies. And he's speaking here literally of a corpse. Think about a corpse, not to make it too morbid, but think about somebody lying in a casket, let's say, at a funeral. That body has zero potential to correct its own situation under those circumstances. They're already dead. They cannot bring themselves back to life. I want you to imagine if someone had a magic pill that they could bring this body back to life and they held the pill out. It wouldn't matter because the body is incapable of lifting its own arm up to grab it. It cannot do anything to support its own needs. Its condition is a barrier to participating in any plan of resurrection. So, that is how it is for every unbeliever. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are already as good as dead because they're waiting for judgment. And their very nature is incapable of pleasing God through good works. Paul uses this, friends, as the starting point for his comparison between how we will walk the same walk that Christ has already walked for us. Christ is our fellow heir. He's blazing the path. He endured a spiritual death on the cross in our place because of our sin. And likewise, friends, we have to share in this step. But unlike Christ, we were born into this condition. We didn't have to stand up on some cross somewhere to follow his steps. We start in that place. Unbelievers are dead in these ways. Notice verse 2. Paul then goes on to say, We formally, again, speaking of our lives before we knew the Lord, we formally were walking in the world according to the course of the world, which Paul says is the normal state of every person on earth from birth onward. That is to be dead, like he said in verse 1. So what we're saying is this. Everyone from day 1 is under a penalty penalty 
of sin. Even a one-day-old child, even a one-hour-old child, is by nature a sinner. And therefore, he or she is already under condemnation for sin. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul says in Romans 3.9, What then? Are we better than they? Well, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greek, that is to say all humanity, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. If you could freeze time right now, if we, if we could make the clock stop on every part of the planet, like a sci-fi television show, and everyone just froze in place for a second, and you could take your time and walk around the entire globe and find every single living human being on the earth at that moment, wherever they were, in their frozen state, waiting for you to come, and you could just inspect each one, including the little babies in the, in the cribs, wherever they are on the earth, Paul's statement would still be true. There's no one you would find who is good. Not one, he says. So it's not about your age, it's about your style of life, or about your background, or your family, or your progeny, or, or any of those things. And it doesn't change the fundamental. Everyone is born a sinner, and so everyone's in the same state. And then Paul goes on in verse 11 of chapter 3 in Romans. He says, there is none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. Okay, put the pause button on again and keep walking. Now we're not looking for who's good, we've already discovered that's fruitless. Let's just see if there's anyone who's seeking for God. That is, an unbeliever who truly wants to find the real God. Paul says you're not going to find that person either. They simply don't exist. And it's not because of a lack of desire or or somebody preventing them. It's not like God's up there pushing them away. It's that the nature of the human being born into this creation is a nature that is dead. Like that body on the slab at the morgue, even as God holds out the offer of the gospel, they can't raise up to get it. They're dead. They're incapable of participating in their own solution. Everyone, he says, is dead in their trespasses and their sins. Friends, Scripture never shrinks back from this truth. And therefore, neither should we. There is simply no such thing as an innocent person born into the family of Adam. No one starts innocent and becomes bad. We all start bad, but by faith, some of us are justified. That, Paul says in verse 2, is the course of the world. It's not something specific to an individual. It's common to everyone, and therefore, we must all contend with it. All humanity has fallen. All humanity is incapable of correcting their own problem. It's the nature of the world. You could say in another context, it is the course of the world to breathe oxygen. It is the natural state of who we are as creation has produced us. Furthermore, Paul says this course has a starting point, has an origin, and that origin is not in God. Now, the creation is obviously something God made. Everything's origin is in God in that sense. But the nature of this problem, this deadness issue that he's talking about, that did not originate in God. That originated elsewhere. He says, in the prince of the power of the air. The course of this world, which is bringing all of us into this deadness we had before Christ, that course is a course authored by the prince of the power of the air. The term prince in Scripture generally just refers to anyone of spiritual authority. And often you see it used to describe Jesus, the prince of peace. Or sometimes it's used to describe a particular angel. Sometimes you'll hear of princes used as a term to describe a a powerful angel that appears, things like that. But in this case, we're talking here about a prince of the power of the air. Paul's not talking about the spiritual authority found in the Godhead. He's talking about Satan, that is, the prince of the fallen world. Satan is the spiritual authority on earth among unbelievers. He's the author of this course of the world, of the unsaved world. You might say he is the coach of team unbeliever. 
They don't know it. I'm not saying they even have an appreciation for it either. What I'm saying though is spiritually that's the truth. He leads the world, the unbelieving world, into furthering his purposes. Paul says Satan is working in the sons of disobedience. You notice at the end of verse 2. He means that Satan uses unbelievers, men and women of course, in his game of opposing God and opposing God's people. The unbelieving world are collectively the sons of disobedience. They are all sons, or you could say they are all children of a spirit, Paul says, that is seeking to disobey God. Paul's using a very Eastern idea, a very Eastern principle here that holds that as the father goes, so goes the child, or so goes the children. So Paul is saying the enemy, Satan, is the father of lies, Jesus calls him in the Gospels. He's the father of lies. He's the source of all sin and rebellion. He was the one in the garden who was tricking the woman, leading men into sin through that process. And through his influence, he brought all humanity into the same state of rebellion that he himself initiated. And therefore, every person born into the family of man is born into this state of heart, this, this state of rebellion. Think of it as I mentioned in the Sunday school this morning. Think of it as like spiritual DNA. We inherit from Satan what Satan himself began. It becomes a program for this world, and here you are. Well, or here the world is. This is the death that we all knew, the state we all began in. And it's a death made necessary by a spiritual nature that deserves death according to God's word. It separates us from God. It prevents us from reversing our condition, which is exactly why Christ had to die in our place. There was simply no other option. Notice Paul says in verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul has continued to argue from verse 1 all the way now into verse 3 that this death, this deadness that we all knew, is a state we all shared before faith. None of us were born, as it were, Christian. I grew up in a family of Catholics, and in that mindset, you're Catholic by birth. And especially since they practice infant baptism, it, it settles the question in their minds anyway very early. Everyone's in early, and you're set, and you're done. There's no more worry about it, into their religious view anyway. But Paul says that's not actually true. Even if you were to say, for argument's sake, that that's a way to salvation, which it's not. Paul's saying even if you practice it in a Protestant tradition, like Presbyterians will baptize their children as well. Paul's saying, look, friends, you all began in a state of deadness that continues until such time as you accept Christ. And that deadness was, you notice in verse 3, it was a nature that we had. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, by nature we were children of wrath. There's a saying that you've often heard me use that is to say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin, that is we act out badly because we are sinners, because our nature drove us to do it. And Paul says, we were all children of wrath. We were people who by our nature were deserving of the penalty of sin you don't have to wait until someone's two years old to know they're a sinner. Certainly you will see it at two years old. And you will see it every day after that too. But they were sinners even before they had the human capacity to act out on that nature. Their nature was just waiting for the chance to show itself. It just didn't have the capacity until a certain age. And then it began to show. But it's always there. Always were we part of the sons of disobedience. Even as the rest, Paul says. But notice the effect it had on us. Nature produces a certain outcome. That is to say, you act according to your nature. I'll use another simple analogy. 
If we have a nature to breathe air, then we cannot act contrary to our nature. Those of us who would like to go underwater and enjoy the undersea world, it's so beautiful, we have to put on special equipment, scuba equipment. Imagine if it were possible, though, to just go underwater, start breathing water, and enjoy the undersea world just like you do above the water. We'd all love to do that. But you will not do it, no matter how much you want to do it. In other words, it's not a matter of your will. Why not? Why is your will, in and of itself, not enough to give you what you want? Well, because, as we all know in our natural life, there are limits to what the will can do. You might want to fly, but you can't do it like Superman. You might want to have superpowers, but you can't do it just because you want to. And you can't breathe underwater, even if that's what you want to. The will wants lots of things that the will can't get. And then there are those things you don't even know you want. Until someone tells you you should want it. The will is limited in many ways. Paul says the nature you had before you came to know Christ limited you. In one way, particularly as he's discussing here. It puts you in a state of spiritual deadness that limited your abilities to do anything to resurrect yourself. That is to correct for your own problem. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who seeks for God. How can that be true if at the same time we hear all the time about seekers or churches that appeal to said seekers? Doesn't that mean there's a group of people somewhere out there that have woken up on a given day and said to themselves, I really need to know God. I I think I'm tired of being apart from God. I need to reckon with Him. I need to deal with my sin. Well, in some senses you find that. Certainly you find people who say, I want more religion. But what you don't find according to Scripture is someone who truly wants to find Jesus but doesn't know him yet. That just does not exist. What we find instead are people who by their nature want to do what an unbeliever can do. Their nature constrains them. They don't have the ability to step into a world of faith apart from God bringing them there. Paul says, in that sense, our walk with Christ starts in a similar starting point. Christ had to die to pay for the sins that we incurred in our life. He had to go the path we would have gone... And Paul says that we were likewise dead in our own life even before we physically died because our sins put us in that deadness. Our sins put him in death and our own sins made us dead as well. That's the starting point for our union with Christ that we should share in that same beginning. Now thankfully we don't end there. He walked into the path of the grave so that he could then move from the grave to the heavenly realm on our behalf. And we will follow that same path. And we've already begun. If by faith you've come to know Christ, then, friends, you've already moved from death to new life, at least spiritually speaking, and we're still waiting for the body that will follow. But we've already made that transition. But knowing where you started is critically important to understanding what you've now gained. Those of you who have been in the Romans class with us over the last several weeks, I think you understand this perhaps better than others might. You understand the importance of knowing where you've come from so that you can better understand what you have now. You've come out of a state in which you were 100% opposed to God and 100% unable to correct your own problem. You've arrived by the power of God, by the might of the Father. He has moved you forward in a process that Christ took on for your sake to a point now where you're no longer dead spiritually but alive. For now, understand, friends, you do not have to, as he says in verse 3, give in to the lusts of your flesh. That's who you were before, indulging the desires of the flesh and in the mind. That's what brought wrath. But those things don't have to be the course of our world now. Think about that this week, though, friends. Think about the fact that you at one point were just like the world, and yet when you see them today, friends, think of them in that state still. They will know Christ as God allows. Perhaps the Lord will give us a chance to see that this week, which would be a great blessing for each of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the chance to step into the likeness of Christ. By your power and by grace, I pray, Lord, that as we step out 
in the newness of the spirit you've given to each of us by faith, that we would speak words of truth and grace to those who have yet to know you boldly and with confidence that you can raise the dead. Even as we walk in our, new, in our bodies alive today, Father, we ask that you would let the world see you through us. Thank you for a church that preaches your word. Let us continue in that mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.